As we rise to read this morning's sermon text, you can turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible with you today, you can use one of the chairback Bibles that's in front of you there, and you'll find this morning's text on page 917. As we continue to study the advance of Jesus Christ in this great story of Acts, we come this morning to verse 20 through 31, a rather short section for the kind of text we've looked at recently, but I trust one that the Lord will use to great effect with us today. So let me just read that passage for us and then pray for a time and and we'll begin. So listen as God does speak to you, even now through his perfect word. And immediately Saul proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Isn't this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of all those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching at the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea, And Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray again. Our great God and most merciful Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us in your word of truth, that you have spoken to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. And pray that you would do even now, by your word and spirit, bring us to saving faith in your son, Jesus Christ, that you would bring us to repentance, that you would increase us in that fear of the Lord and comfort of the Holy Spirit that the church so long ago experienced, that we might glorify you in all things. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. A ministry mentor of mine a number of times throughout the year, hosts these weekender events at his church. And he's been doing it for a couple of decades now, and it's simply a weekender type of event where pastors and leaders, not just from America, but from around the world, will come and get something of this kind of immersive experience in the ministry culture of that particular congregation. And it tends to begin with 
I don't know, maybe 70 to 120 people there watching these elders of the church go about hours of an elder meeting. And the next day it continues and there's talks from the various leaders and pastors there at the church about the nature of healthy ministry. It can be anything from preaching to church membership to various matters of a healthy culture. And then when Sunday comes, everyone joins in the morning and evening service there at the church. They spend the time in between having been designated to go to a particular pastor's home or an elder's home where they have a meal and fellowship and discussion over those matters of ministry. And then it tends to close later on that Sunday evening, quite late at night when they gather again and they evaluate everything that they heard related to the teaching and preaching and leading of the Lord's Day services. And this brother who leads the church has been doing it, like I said, for I think a couple of decades now. And it ought not to be surprising to you if you are training that many pastors and leaders over that many years that you have a ministry model that actually is multiplied worldwide. And I tell you that because what we want to see in our passage today is an apostolic ministry model that no doubt the Spirit and our Sovereign Lord wants multiplied, not just worldwide, but we want to think particularly today about multiplied in our own experience of a local congregation. Because you might know that no other author of Scripture wrote more about the nature of gospel ministry than this man named Saul, who many of you refer to most often as Paul. He's the professor par excellence of pastoral theology. He often tells churches, doesn't he, what the nature of gospel ministry looks like, its elements, its marks, and telling Christians and churches throughout that known world at the time, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so what we want to come to our passage today thinking about is how is this text meant to reflect itself into our life as a local congregation. These are the early days of the Apostle Paul's ministry as we see Saul go about the work that had been entrusted to him by the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ. We're trying to ask the question, well, what is it that we are genuinely meant to learn from this text of Scripture? And so if you weren't with us last week, uh, we simply saw Saul's conversion. He was on the road to Damascus. And kids, do you remember why he was traveling those 150 miles or so northeast from Jerusalem to Damascus? It's because he had in his pocket this extradition order from the high priest where he was going to go into Damascus and with great zeal and, and, and holy fire, he was going to imprison Christians. Surely he was going to bring them back to Jerusalem, not only to confine them into prison, but actually to vote for the execution uh, of many of them. And we were told that uh, sometime along the way, it was at midday, that the sun began to be outshined by a greater sun, which is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And Saul fell down there on the road to Damascus, this road trip that changed the world, and he heard the voice from heaven of the risen and ascended Jesus Christ say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He was blinded as a result of seeing this bright and white light. He goes into Damascus. He waits three days to have his sight restored, and something of those three days seemed to be almost... Uh, repeating of the Lord Jesus Christ in a certain way. It was those three days of the death of the old self, 
that was going to bring about the resurrection of the new self. And what Jesus had commanded was this man named Ananias, go to Saul, lay your hands on him, his sight's going to be restored, and you're going to tell him what my commission is to him. That he is going to be my ambassador, he's going to be my preacher of the gospel to the Gentiles, to those outside of the Jewish fold. And it was a commission not only to speak of Jesus Christ, remember, it's important for what we're getting ready to see, it was a commission also to suffer for Jesus Christ. As Jesus said, I'm going to show him everything he must suffer for my name. So it was not just a preaching of the name of Jesus Christ, it was a suffering for the name of Jesus Christ. And then what we have before us in our short text today is nothing more than the early years of Saul's ministry, his obedience to that very commission. And so our theme then today is learning from Saul's early years in ministry. That's all I want you to see today. Uh, What is it that we must learn from this pattern of ministry that the rest of the New Testament makes clear is to be replicated in ordinary churches like our own. So there's a number of things that I want to show you from our text today, but just to give it some simplicity, some unity, we'll see first of all in the first 10 verses, a faithful ministry. And in the final verse, verse 31, a fruitful ministry. So a faithful ministry and a fruitful ministry. The faithful ministry begins with Saul's obedience. You see verse 20. And immediately, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. If you know anything about Paul's subsequent ministry in the book of Acts, it seems like any time he enters into a city, he would immediately go to the synagogue, and he would go uh, preaching. But on this first occasion of entering a synagogue to preach, you got to put yourself in that moment so long ago to understand just how shocking it would have been to have Saul stand up and preach what he did. He was this ambassador from the high priest, Remember, Saul was the protege of the famous rabbi Gamaliel. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. It would have been normal, as he carried this extradition order from Jerusalem to Damascus, that he would enter into a synagogue there in Damascus and he would preach. So, here comes Saul. Saul of Tarsus, the ravager and murderer of God's people. He's coming into the synagogue and he's getting ready to speak. And everyone there in Damascus was probably thinking, it's about time we've been waiting on him these many weeks to show up and speak to us. You remember old revivals that maybe used to mark our state in decades past. They would announce, coming soon, John Smith, preacher of the gospel for revival week at First Baptist Church. It would almost have though been at that time, if they could have done something similar, a banner would have been flying over the synagogue, coming soon, Saul of Tarsus, ravager of God's church. And here he comes into the synagogue. They're ready for him to speak. They're ready for him to talk about the falsehood, the error, the iniquity of the way. Those that follow Jesus Christ. Saul begins to speak. And what does the text say? Jesus is the son of God. I'm not sure we can fathom how shocking it would have been. They would have looked at each other. That's Saul of Tarsus, right? I mean, I know I've never seen him before, but that's him, right? But isn't this the one that came here to imprison and kill Christians? What did he just say? Jesus is the Son of God. Point number one about a faithful ministry. Faithful ministry means preaching Jesus Christ. Preaching Jesus Christ. You see, not only 
that he's preaching Jesus is the son of God, if you glance down at verse 22, you see that he was proving that Jesus was the Christ. So you want to see something here about the substance of preaching. That substance, it's center, is always meant to be the truth about who Jesus is. Now, in our time today, when we announce that Jesus is the Son of God, sometimes that can bring concern to people because they think that it communicates something of a, of a lesser identity to Jesus. But in that first century context, they meant something often quite different with someone being the Son of someone than we do in our context today. For we know from even Jesus' own ministry in the Gospel accounts, when he calls himself God's Son, when Saul would have stood up in that synagogue and say, Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God, it would have been received as nothing other in those that were hearing as Jesus is God. It was a bold, it was a stunning, it was a truth-filled claim. And to say that he is also the Christ at the end of verse 22 is to say that he is the Messiah. You know, kids, uh, you might often hear the phrase Jesus Christ and think that Christ almost is the last name uh, of Jesus but it's nothing other than just the Greek translation of the Hebrew word for Messiah. And Messiah just means anointed one. So you can think about King David when he was set apart, when he was identified as the king after a God's own heart. What does the prophet Samuel do but go up to him and anoint him with oil, set him apart as the ruler and leader of God's people. So to say that Jesus is the son of God is also to tell us the truth, not only that he is God himself, but he is the one who has come to rule over God's people. He is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He is the one that's going to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. It's the substance of preaching. But the text also tells us something, doesn't it, about the style of preaching. Earlier this week, uh, we had some students from the seminary preaching here for this summer preaching lab, and a number of our members and leaders came to give them feedback, to listen to these short sermons, and uh, give them something of just kind of first impression uh, feedback. And as those labs often go, much of the impressions relate to style, to delivery. You want to pay attention to the verbs that are used of Saul's preaching ministry. You see verse 20, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. And you see verse 22, he proved that Jesus was the Christ. There's always this proclaiming and, and proving reality that belongs to faithful preaching. Proclaiming students means listen, this is the truth. Jesus is the son of God. Proving means I want to show you the logical connections. That Jesus is the Messiah, the long expected savior and redeemer of God's people. I finished this book on audiobook earlier this week when I was doing some yard work outside and I tend to always only exist in a few small genres of fiction and one of which is this kind of thriller suspense genre. And increasingly, every one of those titles seems to come across my horizon as promising a twist at the end that you never would expect. And sure enough, this book was one such book. And so as you listen to the story, you're just kind of paying attention to the characters, the scenes, the conversation along the way because you're trying to guess Who's the bad guy at the end? And whether or not I guessed who the bad guy was at the end, this bad guy was stunningly revealed at the end. And if you've ever seen a movie like that, read a book like that, what do you begin to do? You think back on all the scenes and conversations that came before and you see them all in a new light. That's what's happening here with Saul. 
He's thinking back on all the Old Testament scripture in light of its stunning revelation of Jesus Christ and now it all finally makes sense. Everything just clicks as it begins to prove from passage after passage, prophecy after prophecy, that you know the one you're looking for. He came. You killed him. He rose again. He ascended to the right hand of God the Father in heaven and his name is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That's why throughout this book, he's not only proclaiming the truth, he goes about proving the truth. And when the Spirit accompanies such proclamation, such proving, you'll notice in verse 22, it confounds the doubters. It perplexes uh, the naysayers. I wonder if you've even had something of that click-like moment in your life of learning the truth. Isn't it so often the case that you can study a particular issue in Scripture for years, some of you maybe even for decades. You analyze this argument, you evaluate this argument, and before you know it, uh, you begin to see, okay, it's starting to make a a sense that it didn't make before. And then uh, you get to a point where you start to have, well, I have this sympathy now for what I used to think was absolutely wrong. And then you seemingly wake up one morning And this truth that you are always looking at from the outside in. You just wake up and suddenly it's like from the inside out. You're living in that truth. And that was the case for Saul here. As he goes about his preaching of Jesus Christ. Now point number two about a faithful ministry. A faithful ministry means waiting on Jesus Christ. Look at verse 23. It begins by telling us, Many days had passed. I know a a pastor that is considered by many to be one of the finest preachers of his generation. And when he was a young pastor, he ministered at this very large, very influential church in one of the greatest cities of his country. And he was beginning to get invited to all of the famous conferences, uh, beginning to get on that itinerant circuit No small number of offers had come for publishing articles and uh, publishing books. And then against all expectation, at that large church and that influential city, he took a call to the remotest part of his nation, to a tiny church with only a few dozen people. Because as he told me a few months ago, he just needed to figure a few things out. He was waiting on the Lord. And the reason I tell you that is because Luke has us here in verse 23 saying many days had passed. Well, Galatians chapter 1 tells us actually three years had passed. Paul was ministering there in Damascus. He went into Arabia for three years. And we don't really know much about his ministry there in Arabia. I tend to side in the view that much like prophets of old would go out into desert areas where they would be prepared and waiting upon the Lord's commission for their ministry in a similar manner. Saul is out waiting surely ministering and preaching in various ways, but it seems as though just years pass in utter silence. Actually, in the closing of our text today in verse 31, Saul doesn't show up again for a few chapters, and another eight to ten years are going to pass before we hear anything about his ongoing ministry. And many of you know, don't you, that when God chooses his servants, when he commissions his servants, one thing that they actually do very early on is have to wait for a long time to be faithful to that ministry. You see, he immediately went about preaching in Damascus, and you think that now the gospel is going to go forth to the ends of the earth, but actually the Spirit in his wisdom, God in his wisdom says, no, you need to actually wait for over a decade before that work is going to really begin. 
You need to wait until perhaps you're ready for it. You might be in a season, perhaps, of waiting. And many of you know that waiting is very difficult. You might be in a season, therefore, of of kicking against the goads in impatience. And maybe just like it was with Saul, God is causing you, commanding you to wait, that you might learn something, that you might be faithful in your future ministry. So it's faithful Ministry means preaching Jesus Christ. It means waiting on Jesus Christ. And no doubt in the next major part of our text, it means suffering for Jesus Christ. Look at verse 23 through 25. These three years had passed. He returns to Damascus and he found out the Jews had plotted to kill him. And this plot became known to Saul and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. So this is Saul's basket case. And it's actually significant enough in his mind that he returns to it in his second letter to the Corinthians at the end of chapter 11. He speaks more about the context going in the moment that it was the ruler, the king of this area that was so opposed to Paul's ministry that he had set guards all over the city be on the lookout for Saul because we need to kill him. Well, he's let down a basket overnight that he might escape. And I trust many of you know that being bundled into a basket is no triumphant way to leave a city as a minister. Uh, Saul even connects this experience to God teaching him that he must minister faithfully as he learns the value of his weakness in ministry. Maybe God is bundling you into a basket that you might learn it's the weak vessels that God honors in a faithful ministry. But he goes to Jerusalem, and you'll see the exact same thing seems to happen. Suffering continues, but it's not just from outside of the church, it's from inside of the church. Notice verse 26, when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. It was hard to make sense this many years on after Saul's conversion why the Jerusalem disciples were so scared of Saul. In my mind, it seems most likely, by the way that information would have traveled at such a time in the first century, that they'd heard these reports of of Saul preaching the gospel in Damascus, and then just things go silent for years and years and years. What would people naturally expect? Well, maybe he really wasn't converted truly and faithfully to the Lord Jesus Christ. Certainly, there was suspicion and skepticism as he came, but a friend in need is a friend indeed. Notice verse 27, Barnabas took him, brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord and spoke to him and at Damascus he preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Many Christians today might experience something like Saul. You find it difficult to assimilate your life into a local congregation. Maybe even a small group, a Sunday school setting. Maybe it's something that you've done in the past, something you've said in the past, and people are doubting whether or not there has been a genuine change of heart. And oftentimes we need, don't we, someone like Barnabas, a trusted, respected individual that comes alongside and says, no, the Lord has done something amazing in this person's life. Kids, do you remember anything about Barnabas? We've met this man already in the book of Acts. You can think back to chapter 4. He showed up at the end of that chapter, and we were told that he sold a piece of property. He gave all of the proceeds to the church in order to help the poor. We actually found out that his real name was Joseph, that the apostles had nicknamed him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. 
How many churches today need many Barnabases, sons and daughters of encouragement, that people might be brought in? Galatians tells us that for something like 15 days, Saul was meeting there with Peter and James, the Lord's brother. And after meeting with them, you'll notice verse 28, he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And so, verse 30 tells us, the brothers learned this and they sent him off to his hometown of Tarsus. When Saul later recounts this story in the book of Acts, he says he was actually in the temple there at Jerusalem praying one day when the Lord Jesus appeared to him in a vision and said, you need to leave. Now, why did he need to leave? Well, we know, of course, that Saul was meant to be an apostle to the Gentiles. He was meant to go out from Jerusalem. He wasn't meant to stay there where perhaps it was comfortable. Stay there, perhaps, where it was going to find a ready audience. So faithful ministry means preaching Jesus Christ. It means waiting on Jesus Christ. And no doubt, it means suffering for Jesus Christ. And if you know anything of Saul's story, that suffering often takes him to where the Lord desires him to go, Sometimes it's even difficult for Saul to understand. And eventually, as we think about his name differently, Paul to understand why it is that he's facing all this opposition, this intimidation, this persecution. But the Lord tends to use trial, doesn't he? To get his people exactly where they're supposed to be. Maybe you're facing a time of, of difficulty. And maybe the Lord means to move you. It may not even be away from here, but move you into this season of particular fruitfulness. And the only reason you're going to get there is because it's so hard here. Saul seemingly found that out every few months in his ministry. Some of you might find that out every few years in your ministry. So it's a faithful ministry, Saul gives us in this passage. No doubt verse 31 means to show us a fruitful ministry. A fruitful ministry. Many of you are old enough to remember a time 40, 50 years ago when something that we now call the church growth movement took over American church life. And as we've now kind of laid the church growth movement in many ways into a grave and begun to done the historical analysis of that movement, what we can easily discern from decades now looking back on it is that what it sought to do in, in and around the 1970s was take all of these best practices from the business world and apply them to the church and we could have an interesting conversation, I, I trust, about all the ways that those best practices from the business world have genuinely just latched on to American church life, and we just assume their reality and presence. And one of the simplest ways to illustrate that is in the 1970s, in a way that nobody ever thought about it before, it was said that American churches needed to have a vision statement for their ministry. And I dare say, if you went into almost every church in our denomination today, and they were interviewing a pastor or associate pastor for a pastoral position, someone will quickly ask, well, what's your vision for this church? I even know a pastor nearby that was asked such a question before, and he just recited the Great Commission. Go therefore and baptize the nations. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded of you. And the response was, yeah, but what's your vision? The best answers, aren't they, are biblical answers. I actually tell a number of people, just memorize Acts 9.31. There is a fullness, a vision, for what a fruitful church life looks like. 
For you notice what we're told. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So as we close, let's just meditate on these five realities mentioned here in this progress report of Luke for the early church's growth. You see, first of all, it had peace. It's probable that it had peace primarily at this time because Saul, the ravager and murderer of the church, was now a preacher of Jesus Christ. Uh, That the the main opponent of Christianity has now become a main proponent of Christianity. But no doubt as Paul begins to encourage churches in his future letters, one of the principal things that he commands them to pursue is what? Peace. Strive to the Romans, he says, to live at peace with all people. To the Colossians, he says, put on peace as you are called in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Do you know what it means for a people to live at peace? I dare say in our context and time, this is the one way that Satan's strategies and the world's wiles roar against the church in a way that we probably don't realize. Of all places in the world today, you should be able to enter a church building and observe a people of peace. For we preach the gospel of peace, brought about by the Prince of Peace, that brings enemies of God into peace with God. And yet maybe you know how Christians of all people can bite better than others, can crush better than others. When the church here has peace in the midst of a war, that rages around them in the spiritual places, no doubt in the first century, actually in the government places and cities where they lived. It had peace. You see, also, it was a place of spiritual growth. Luke tells us it was being built up. It's the language of being strengthened. It's the uh, language of edification. Uh, Paul will later on, doesn't he, talk about the church as it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and it's meant to grow from that foundation. Uh, a church is building, if you will, the frame of that house as it's pursuing its life in, in Christ together. And I wonder what your ordinary contribution is to the church's edification. It's a spiritual growth here. You see, thirdly, we're, we're told that it was walking in the fear of God. It's a church of peace. It's a church of spiritual growth. It's a, it's a church of fear. Uh, they had no small number of reasons, right, in the book of Acts to fear worldly powers. To fear worldly rulers, but their favorite fright, Luke says, was God. Because that is the soul of holiness, isn't it? That is the reverence that brings forth obedience. Uh, Why why fear the world out there, Jesus says. No, you fear the one who can cast body and soul into hell. You live in the fear of God, knowing it's the whole duty of man. What do you fear most in the world? Uh, I sometimes think that we need to return to Reminders. We need to remember what it means to minister faithfully and fruitfully because we live in a time always where Satan's strategies are pressing in upon the church to do anything but minister the gospel of of Jesus Christ. We need more cultural concerns, political concerns, psychological concerns, emotional concerns. And in so doing, if we begin to do that, just give it a generation, you'll lose the gospel in most of those churches. And you don't realize that how the preaching of Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the Messiah, addresses cultural realities, is a political statement in and of itself, and brings emotional and psychological maturity as the Holy Spirit alone can. The Holy Spirit, you notice, mentioned fourthly, the comfort of the Holy Spirit. You could translate it as the encouragement 
of the Holy Spirit, the consolation of the Holy Spirit. It's these twin graces, aren't there, that, that just go together, that perhaps sometimes we think are almost in opposition to each other, fearing God and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. I tell seminary students that they need to figure out if they're a better wedding preacher or a funeral preacher. Uh, God's personalities mean that every man is probably better at one than the other, uh, meaning better at preaching the fear of God than the comfort of God's Spirit, or the comfort of God's Spirit better than the fear of God. I wonder in your own life, have perhaps you lost the glorious reality of both of those things, fearing God and knowing the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. And finally, fifthly, what we're told, notice it's not just spiritual growth, it's numeric growth. It multiplied. More people were converted. More people were coming. More people were saved. More people were sanctified. The gospel is expanding. Why is it expanding? Well, because what they were enjoying is a faithful ministry. How is it expanding? Well, in these fruitful ways. Growth, peace, fearing God, the Spirit's counsel. What kind of progress report would Luke give of this church? And what things are we advancing? In what ways are we walking? Let's pray together. My God, we ask for your grace and your mercy to minister to us by your word and spirit that we might be built up in Jesus Christ, that we might know the expanding grace and its power in our hearts, that we might be revived even by your spirit. We who are perhaps dead might be made new. We who are perhaps backsliding might be restored on the way and path to righteousness. Lord, find us faithful and make us fruitful. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we... Now respond to God's word, singing this hymn that we've been singing for a number of weeks now that seems so appropriate to the gospel's advance and acts as we turn in our bulletins to sing our hymn of response, O Church, Arise.